Our Father, Almighty, wise, and gracious, we give You thanks and praise for who You are and all Your wonderful works. Your handiwork throughout the creation shows us Your beauty and power. Your providence shows us Your generosity and faithfulness and constancy. Your redemption shows us Your eternal love, mercy, and grace. We thank You, O Father, that You put forth Your Son as a sacrifice to absorb the divine wrath, to accomplish our redemption, to forgive our sins, to reconcile us to You. And You have poured out Your Holy Spirit upon us to unite us to Your Son and to give us new life in Him. We thank You, O Father, for making us members of Your church, the body and bride of Christ. We thank You for giving us Your inspired and infallible Word. We thank You for the gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Indeed, we thank You, Father, for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. For in Him we know we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. We are here, O Lord, to give You thanks for everything and in everything. We honor You for Your majesty, for Your excellence, for Your beauty. And today we seek to bring You glory by declaring Your greatness, by receiving Your gifts in faith so that we may live in Your peace and have assurance and receive Your wisdom. O great Father, with Your Son and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons from all eternity to all eternity. Amen. I want to read a few more passages this morning. This is Proverbs 11, verse 17. The kind man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. Proverbs 21, 21. He who follows righteousness and kindness finds life, righteousness, and honor. And then finally, I want to reread one verse we read earlier from Ephesians 4. This is Ephesians 4.32. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. It is such a great kindness to us. Indeed, our whole salvation is the manifestation of Your kindness. Father, even as we have been shown kindness, may we learn to show kindness to one another. Speak to us this day. Shape us by Your truth. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What does it take to make it in the world today? Most people would say you've got to be tough. Uh, you got to be able to fight for yourself, to look out for yourself. If you want to make it, especially in uh, the professional realm of business or in politics, then you had better be thick-skinned. Now, having grit, uh, persevering, being persistent, uh, these are Christian virtues. Christians uh, don't believe in being ruthlessly cutthroat, but we're certainly not afraid of competition. Uh, certainly Christians should be people who are thick-skinned. But Christians should also be tender-hearted. We should be kind. And I think it's pretty obvious that kindness is a missing virtue in our society. Uh, kindness is underrated. Uh, you see how kindness is missing in the lack of civility in our public discourse. Was there very much kindness in display in this last 
election cycle? Uh, I don't think so. I didn't see a whole lot of it. Uh, kindness is missing from public life, but it's also largely been lost in private life. Now, there have certainly been attempts to restore kindness in our culture. You've heard of the random acts of kindness movement, uh, which encourages sporadic acts of generosity and friendliness towards people. Uh, this random acts of kindness movement was actually started in 1982 in Sausalito, California, uh, by a woman named Ann Herbert. And uh, she got so frustrated watching the newscast, night after night after night, uh, where repeatedly she was being shown stories about random acts of violence and senseless acts of cruelty. And so she decided to do something about it. She called on people to begin practicing random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. And this caught on. It was a movement. Uh, very quickly it became a kind of fad, and it's still very much with us. You'll still see the bumper stickers around. From time to time you'll see a T-shirt. It's made its way into uh, movies and books. And, of course, that's not a bad thing at all. We want to encourage kindness. But in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says this. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I would say there that Paul has something more in mind than simply random acts of kindness. It's not random acts of kindness he's calling for. It's consistent kindness. It's habitual, repeated acts of kindness. It's constant kindness. It's a lifestyle of kindness. Indeed, you could say in the church, Paul wants to foster a culture of kindness. And over the years, I've, of course, as a pastor, given a lot of thought to uh, what should characterize our relationships in this church? What should characterize our church's relationships, our church's culture? Uh, what should our relationships look like in our families and in the wider community? What would be a, a, a proper vision for us as we think about what life ought to look like? And one verse I keep coming back to uh, through the years is this verse in Ephesians 4, 432. Uh, I think it's such a wonderful summary. No, it does not say everything that needs to be said. Uh, but what it does say is so crucial and it's so countercultural. It's all about kindness. God's kindness to us, and then as God's kindness flows to us through Christ Jesus, how that kindness flows out through us to one another. What does it mean to be kind? What, what is Paul talking about here when he says to be kind to one another? What is kindness? What would our lives and our families and our church look like if kindness permeated all of our words and actions? If the kindness that is described here uh, really described our posture towards one another? And there's something deeply attractive, uh, something uh, really magnetic about a life of kindness. But kindness does not come easy. Uh, kindness is hard to come by in a fallen world. We hear a lot about living life to the fullest. You hear a lot about that these days, don't you? People want to live life to the fullest. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus, you could say, lived His life to the emptiest. That's how Paul puts it in Philippians 2. Philippians 2.6. Paul says, Christ Jesus emptied Himself taking the form of a servant. 
Jesus emptied Himself in order to fill us. He poured out His life in order to fill us with His love. He emptied Himself on the cross in order to fill you with new life. That's God's great act of kindness. That's the kindness God has shown us in Christ Jesus. And that's where kindness starts. Kindness starts with God Himself. What God has done for us in Christ. And if we ask, well, where do we see God's kindness? Certainly, it's all around us. All the, the, the gifts of life that we enjoy come to us from the kindness of God. But we ask, where do we really see the kindness of God? The cross marks the spot. At the cross, we see the tenderheartedness and compassion of God. We see His forgiveness. We see God serving Indeed, we could say the entire history of God's redemptive work is a cosmic act of kindness. The story of God's dealings with His people is a story of kindness. And now God wants us to write our own stories of kindness. We have been shown kindness. Now we must show kindness to others. Uh, the, the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he put it this way. So the rule of God's kingdom is we can only be recipients of God's kindness if we are willing to become agents of God's kindness. In other words, as you have received, so you must give. As God has shown you kindness, you must show kindness to others. That's what Paul says here in Ephesians 4. Be kind to others as God in Christ has been kind to you. Forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. The call to kindness is a reminder that we are called to live in community. Uh, everything that Paul says about the Christian life here in Ephesians and indeed throughout all of his letters, everything Paul says about the Christian life assumes that the Christian life is a social life that the Christian exists in a web or network of thick relationships, that relational bonds are just central to the Christian life. Uh, the uh, secular philosopher A.N. Whitehead once said, religion is what people do with their solitude, as if religion were uh, an isolated and individualistic and private pursuit. That might work for Buddhism. That does not work for the Bible. For the Christian, religion is done in community. It's done in community. According to the Bible's account, humans are relational beings. We're relational creatures, social creatures. And this is ultimately because we are made in the image of the relational God, the social God. You see this on the very first page of the Bible in Genesis 1. The Bible's creation account in Genesis 1. The one God says, let us make man in our image. If God is one, why the plural pronouns us and our? It's because, as we see, as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see this God who is one is also three. The one God mysteriously exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons who share the same divine attributes, the, the, the one divine life. The one God is, you could say, a family or society of persons. We are made in the image of this God. That's the biblical claim. And so we were made for community. If God Himself exists as a kind of community, 
then certainly if we are made in His image, we were made for community as well. We're made for society, for family, for friendship, for relationship. We're made to image this God, to image the Trinity. As humans, we have been given a Trinity-shaped script for life, a a Trinity-shaped script to live by. And so Christians don't fly solo. Uh, There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Uh, Christians are children of God, but no Christian is allowed to think of himself as an only child. You're part of a family. You've got siblings, brothers and sisters in the faith, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Your relationship with Jesus is certainly personal, but it's not private. You need other Christians. You need the community if you're going to live the Christian life. You need the church. If you are united to Christ, you're also united to His body, to His people, to the church. If you're going to live the Christian life, you have to have a band of brothers. You have to have a community of faith. But see, this is hard for us because it's not how our culture, it's not how our wider society trains us to think of ourselves. And uh, in America, we are trained to think of ourselves very much as individuals, to think of ourselves as individuals first, to think of ourselves as individuals before we think of ourselves as members of a community. In our culture, we're pressed to live by an individualistic script. As Americans, we think I precedes we. We like to think of ourselves as self-made men or self-made women. The Scripture reverses this. In fact, I can give you a very easy refutation of American individualism. You want a refutation of American individualism? Just look at your belly button. Not right now. (laughs) We don't need everybody lifting up their shirt in church. (laughs) Your belly button is a reminder that you came from somewhere, from someone. Your belly button is continual proof that you are not autonomous, that you have been dependent from the very beginning, that you are not self-made, you are others-made. Your belly button is a reminder that quite literally each one of us is the product of community. The communion of our parents brought us into existence from the very beginning. We are the product of community. You were a you before you were an I. You were spoken to before you could speak. You were made and formed by others before you could even contemplate making and forming yourself into a unique individual. Now yes, each of us as an individual does have a kind of uniqueness. Christians don't deny that. In fact, uh, we see that in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are each unique persons. But our uniqueness as individuals is discovered and expressed precisely in the context of community, not in isolation from it. And so when God calls us into a community, a community of kindness, a a community cult that, that is characterized by kindness, what is He doing? He's simply calling us to live in accordance with our design. When God says to us, be kind to one another, that's like saying to a fish, swim in the water. Or to a bird, fly in the sky. This is what we were made for. It's how we were made to exist and live. We live and exist and have our being in community. We were made in and for relationship. Friendship and community is integral to our humanity. It's a key to our humanity. This is why loneliness and isolation is so dehumanizing. I love how C.S. Lewis put this so quaintly, reflecting on his Friendship, uh, his fellowship with 
the other Inklings, the group of Christian writers he would regularly get together with. In one of his letters he says this, Is any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends around a fire? See, the reason that pleasure is so great, you know, Lewis is talking about this gathering of Christian friends around a fire. The reason the pleasure there is so great is because this is a, a foretaste of heaven on earth. This is life as it is supposed to be lived. This is where you find yourself and find true joy. It's in this kind of Christian community. This is where you experience it. Lewis captured that. Now what is this kindness that we're called to? Most simply, kindness is simply living as if people matter. That's what it means to be kind. Live as if people matter because they do. Now, that sounds easy enough, I suppose. It's easy to define kindness. Much more difficult to live it out. Uh, indeed, it's deeply challenging. It's challenging because of sin. So God made humanity good and righteous in the beginning, but we know how the story goes. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned against God. They polluted the human stream. And all of us ever since have inherited this condition of sin. And when Adam and Eve turned against God, you see this right there in Genesis 3 in the Bible's account of the fall. They not only turn against God, but as soon as sin enters the world, they turn against each other. And so kindness has been hard to come by ever since. See, if kindness is acting as if other people matter, sin is acting as if I alone matter. Sin is self-absorption. Martin Luther said sin makes us curve in on ourselves. Sin makes it impossible to empathize uh, with others or to be thoughtful of others. Uh, John Paul Sartre, I think this is going to be the second week in a row I quoted him, but he was the, the French existentialist philosopher. Sartre said, hell is other people. And what he meant by that is other people are constantly getting in the way. Their demands, my obligations to them. This is interfering with my freedom and my desire to do what I want to do. Hell is other people. Contrast that with C.S. Lewis, who says a circle of Christian friends around a fire is a taste of heaven on earth. It's heaven, not hell. Two totally different ways of, of looking at relationships, looking at other people. And I would say, this is what sin has done to us. Instead of seeing our relationships with others as a kind of foretaste of heaven, they become hellish because they interfere with our desire to do what we want to do. Now, I think it's easy for us, you know, as soon as the, the, the pastor starts talking about kindness, it's easy for us, I think, to, to, to some degree to just kind of roll our eyes and say, oh yeah, kindness, I know that already, I do that already, and I can check that box off. And you can tune out now and start thinking about the Super Bowl and that kind of don't do that, and I'll tell you why you shouldn't do that. Um, I am quite confident that most of us vastly overestimate how kind we are, and we vastly underestimate how selfish and critical we are. We suffer from what you could call kindness blindness. And, and I can prove this to you because I know that virtually every single one of you, if not every single one of you, uh, you, you have in your life relationships that are difficult and that are strained. Why do you think that's the case? You know, maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with a sibling, maybe it's with a co-worker. You've got a relationship somewhere in your life that is difficult and strained. And you know, so often when we find ourselves in a situation with a strained relationship, we, we wonder, why, I wonder why things are like this. 
And what we don't realize is all the ways that we have sabotaged our relationships with others through our lack of kindness. We're simply blind to the ways that we have failed in our relationships. Now, the other person has probably failed you too. There's probably sin on both sides. But generally, this is the case. It's very, very rare to find a situation where a broken or ruptured relationship is 100% the other person's fault. We almost always can find ways, if we really were to assess the situation carefully, we can almost always find ways in which we ourselves have failed. And our failure is a failure of kindness. So it's important for us to know what kindness looks like. What does kindness look like at the dinner table? More importantly, what does kindness look like after dinner when there are dishes to be done? What does kindness look like in the workplace, especially when the printer runs out of toner? What does kindness look like at school? What does kindness look like with our neighbors? What does kindness look like when you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off? Kindness keeps very good company. This is one way to recognize to recognize kindness is by the, the company kindness keeps. In Ephesians 4, you see this. Kindness is in, um, in this passage. It talks about all these other virtues, but even there in verse 32, it talks about being tenderhearted and forgiving. Kindness brings with it a kind of tenderheartedness and compassion. It brings with it forgiveness. In Galatians 5, we didn't read it this morning, but in Galatians 5, kindness is listed among the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit including virtues such as love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Kindness is associated and linked with all these other virtues. In Colossians 3, which we did read, kindness is linked to tender mercies, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So how do you know what kindness looks like? How do you recognize it? Well, partly you recognize it by all the other virtues it brings with us. With it, Kindness has cousins that are always present with it. Kindness never travels alone. Kindness is always with these other virtues. What are some other features of kindness? Kind, and I'm going to try to be real concrete and specific here. Kindness means you build others up rather than tearing them down. Kindness means you want to see others flourish. If you're kind towards someone, you want to see them do their best and be their best and receive the best. Kindness means you will encourage others. You're going to be affirming of others. You are an others-affirming person. Oh sure, there are a lot of times when you could be critical, but for kindness' sake, you will hold your tongue. Oh sure, there are times where you could be quiet. You could be silent and say nothing. But instead, you speak a word of praise for kindness' sake. Kindness knows when to keep its mouth shut and it knows when to speak and it knows what to say when it does speak. Kindness is not merely niceness. Oh, sure, there's some overlap. I think that's how we tend to think about it is to be kind is just to be nice. But kindness goes much deeper. Niceness is usually just superficial. Niceness is the kind of, it's the kind of mannerliness that we have to just kind of get through life as easily as possible. Kindness goes much deeper. Kindness is actually difficult in a way that niceness is not. And of course, that means that the kindness is not just politeness either. I think it includes politeness because uh, showing manners is a way of showing love. It's a way of showing respect to the other person. Manners are important. And I think that one of the reasons we don't see much kindness or civility in our society is because we've lost manners. We've lost any kind of, uh, we've lost the protocols that we need in order to have uh, civil discussions with each other. We've lost that. Uh, kindness would get that back for us. Kindness includes politeness. But kindness is so much more. 
than just manners. Kindness aims at creating thick relationships. Kindness creates friendship. The multimillionaire Howard Hughes was once asked, what it was like to have all that money? What's it like to have so much money? And he said, you know, I'd give it all away for just one friend. That's what kindness does. Kindness reckons with the true value of friendships. Kindness creates friendships of incalculable value. Kindness means avoiding unnecessary arguments. I realize here I'm kind of meddling, kind of, you know, um, getting into the tight spots in your life, the dark spots. But this is one that I think we so often fall into. 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul is writing to a pastor, and he's really describing what ought to be true of the pastor, so I suppose especially convicting for me. But it applies to all of us. Paul says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to all. How often do we find ourselves getting into unnecessary and unproductive and unprofitable arguments that waste time and that drain our energy and that alienate us from each other? Face-to-face, we do that quite a bit. How much more do we do that on social media? How often are we unkind or unthoughtful on social media? How often do we get into unprofitable arguments on social media? I'm not saying all arguments on social media are unprofitable, but certainly a lot of them are. If you were to take away all the unprofitable arguments from the Internet, I could probably fit what was left on my hard drive. Okay? So much from the Internet is just wasted space. It's wasted space because it's unkind, unnecessary argument. What kindness does is kindness breaks the cycle of useless arguments. Kindness aims at bringing out the best in others. Again, kindness wants to see others flourish. Kindness wants to see others fulfill their potential. Kindness means being committed to the good of others beyond just what you can get out of the relationship. See, again, this American individualism and American consumerism has trained us to look at every relationship in terms of a cost-benefit analysis. What am I going to put into this versus what am I going to get out of this? And if we're not going to get a lot out of it, then we don't see any purpose in the relationship. Kindness doesn't do that. Kindness does not assess people according to what they can do for us. How being associated with this person might make me look more popular or cooler how this person can can somehow pay me back, tit for tat, everything that I do for them, I'm going to get it right back. Kindness does not engage in that kind of cost-benefit analysis before deciding to help someone or serve someone. No, kindness says serve, even if they may not serve you back. Serve anyway. Jesus says, look, if you only serve those who serve you back, you're no better than the pagans. The pagans do that. The real kind of Christian kindness, the kind of spiritual kindness... The supernatural kindness we're called to show is a kindness in which we may not be repaid by the person. We know our Heavenly Father will repay the gift. But the earthly person we're serving may not. Kindness means taking an interest in others. It means taking the focus off of yourself. It means you don't have to be in the spotlight all the time. You're not going to be an attention hall. Kindness means that you're going to let others step into the spotlight and you're going to want to get to know them. And you're going to want to get to know them at a deep level. Their hopes, their dreams, their needs, their gifts. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes humility. Lewis said humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True Christian humility doesn't mean you have some kind of self-esteem crisis and you just talk about how worthless you are. 
Because quite honestly, if you're practicing true Christian humility, you're not thinking about yourself much anyway. To even value yourself up or down on the scale. You're thinking about other people. See, humility opens the door to the practice of kindness because it takes the focus off of self and it puts the focus on those around you. And you seek to get to know them and you seek to invest in them. You seek to build up a rich portfolio of relationships that you know will pay a a great return on your investment. Again, maybe not from a human perspective, but certainly from the divine. Of course, this means, this kind of humility that goes along with kindness, this means listening. Most people listen in order to respond. Kindness means listening in order to understand. It means really listening. I mean, you might have to put your phone down for a few minutes. You're going to have to look the person in the eye. You're going to have to focus all your attention on that other person. So often, when we're there with people, we're not really there. We're not all there. We're just partially there. So many of us seem to value our face-to-screen time so much more than we do face-to-face time. And I'm not talking about the time in front of a screen that you have to do for work. That's, that's different. But I'm just talking about how we use our discretionary time. Kindness makes room for engaging deeply with the other people God has brought into our lives. Kindness means that you are harder on yourself than you are on others. But how often do we reverse this? You know, how often do we excuse our own sin? We go, we go so light on our own sin, so easy and soft on our own sin. So when I tell a little lie or when I get angry or when I have impatient words, well, you have to understand, I was just having a bad day. I was tired. I hadn't gotten a chance to eat. There was an excuse. There was a reason. See, my sin really wasn't that bad. I can really minimize it because I, I know all my excuses for why I acted the way I did. But when someone else does the same thing to us, we're so quick to judge and condemn. We're so hard on them for their sin. We're so hard on them for their unkindness. There can be no excuse for how that person has treated me. This is really the essence of what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were easy on their own sin and they were hard on the sins of others. That's the very thing Jesus condemns in the Gospel. If you're going to have a double standard like that, one standard for yourself and a another standard for other people, then make sure you're stricter with yourself than you are with others. Be harder on your own sin than you are on the sins of others. Think, you know, maybe that person's just having a bad day. Maybe that person's tired. Maybe they didn't get to eat. Maybe that's why they're, they're having a you know, hard time being kind today. Make excuses for the other person if you're going to make excuses. Kindness, again, means recognizing that friendship takes effort. Again, it's about investing in a portfolio of people a portfolio of relationships knowing that the return will ultimately be there in God's economy. Too many people today want the benefits of friendship without the responsibilities. We talk about how we want community, and then as soon as somebody talks about holding us accountable, we run the other direction because we simply don't want it. Friendship doesn't work that way. It's interesting to me, if you look at Jesus in the Gospels, or if you look at the Apostle Paul, Uh, in the book of Acts and in his letters, you see that Jesus and Paul are constantly surrounded by friends. And they are constantly investing themselves in other people. In fact, often people who are very difficult. uh, People who let them down. We sang that this morning about how friends may fail me and foes assail me. Well, Jesus and Paul dealt with that a lot, but it did not keep them from being kind. See, kindness extends even to those people who are difficult and even to those people who disappoint us. 
I mean, we all have difficult people in our lives, don't we? I think sometimes God brings uh, irritating people into our lives just to teach us kindness, just to teach us patience and how to be long-suffering. And so the question is, how kind are you to the unkind? How kind are you to the ungrateful and the entitled? When someone else's sin ruptures the relationship, how do you respond? Are you slow to anger and quick to forgive? Or are you quick to anger and slow to forgive? Do you show mercy? Are you compassionate? Are you patient? Are you willing to be long-suffering? Now, kindness does not mean being mushy or wimpy. In fact, kindness can be very confrontational. Uh, I know a lot of you will remember uh, in the past where I've, when I've talked about the Rosaria Butterfield story. Uh, you can read Rosaria Butterfield's uh, book, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the title right now, but, but a really great story. But th- this, this aspect of it really, really stood out to me, how kindness can be confrontational. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield uh, made a journey into the Christian faith. Uh, she was a, a lesbian university professor in, at Syracuse. And, uh, and she was a very outspoken critic of the Christian faith, which she saw as intolerant and unkind uh, and bigoted. Uh, her impression of Christians is they were judgmental, they were unloving, uh, all, all those kind of stereotypes that you hear thrown out uh, in the culture that sadly are sometimes true. Uh, while she was still a, a lesbian university professor, she wrote an article for the local paper that was highly critical of a Christian conference that was going to take place in her city. And she just ripped this Christian conference to shreds. And it got all kinds of responses. And so the responses were mailed into her, and, and they were so polarized. And as these responses would come in, as she would open her mail every day, she would sort them out into two piles on her desk. She had a pile of fan mail on one side and a pile of hate mail on the other. And her was kind of humorous how how sharply... Uh, distinct the two responses were. But then she received a letter, a two-page letter from a local pastor, that she didn't quite know what to do with. She didn't know which category to put it in, which stack on her desk she should put it in. On the one hand, the letter was uh, very kind uh, and inquiring. It raised a lot of questions. But it was also very challenging. But it was challenging in a civil way. And because she didn't know what to do with the letter, which pile to put it in, it just sat there in the middle of her desk for days. She described it later. She said, it was the kindest letter of opposition I had ever received. She was so intrigued by the kindness of the letter that she finally reached out to the pastor. And she got to know him and his wife. And and actually their friendship became very instrumental in her conversion to the Christian faith. Kind opposition kind confrontation. It's just the kind of thing we need to figure out how to practice in our culture. Kindness is especially needed in our families. This is where I think this really uh, will hit closest to home, quite literally, uh, for us. You know, you can just kind of tell when you walk into a home whether or not there is a culture of kindness there. We need domestic kindness, household kindness, Familial kindness. Certainly husbands have to lead the way in this kindness a little bit later. You know, we read into Ephesians 5, you keep reading in Ephesians 5, you come to Paul's instructions about marriage to husbands and wives. And Paul says to husbands, he says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's setting the standard pretty high, isn't it? Men to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Husbands, that means serving your wife. 
sacrificially. It means cherishing her, bearing her burdens. It especially means giving her the safety and security of your love. It means treating her with gentleness and with kindness. But Paul also has instructions for wives there. He says that, uh, in essence, wives must be kind to their husbands. Uh, Proverbs 31 describes the ideal wife and says the law of kindness is on her tongue. In other words, she communicates respect to her husband with her kind words. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that a wife is to respect her husband. That's how she can show him kindness. Wives need to realize that just what those words, I love you, mean to you as a wife, those words, thank you, mean the same to your husband. Wives, you know how you feed off your husband's words of love in the same way your husband feeds off of your words of respect. You're built up by his words of love. He's built up by your words of respect. That's how you can be kind to one another within the marriage relationship. When husbands and wives are kind, they bring out the best in one another. They fill their marriage with joy. A joy that overflows out into the world around them and their home can really become a kind of home base for mission and ministry and hospitality. You can't welcome people into your home if it's filled with all kinds of unkindness. But when it's filled with kindness, you want people to come in and experience that joy, the joy of your home with you. We should keep reading in Ephesians. Come to Ephesians 6 where Paul has instructions for parents and children. Parents certainly should show kindness to their children and children to their parents. Parents, you have to be kind to your children. You have to teach your kids. You have to discipline your kids. But you have to remember that your kids are frail in certain ways and so you have to be gentle. Indeed, Paul says this. Don't be overly harsh with your words or with your discipline. Parents, you need to be very aware of ways in which you might make your kids feel as if they could never please you, as if you could never be satisfied, as if you could never be happy with them. If your expectations are exasperating your kids, then you need to adjust your expectations. You need to find ways to praise your children for what they do well. They feed off of that praise. They need to be secure in your love and in your kindness. And of course, children, you need to be kind to your parents by doing what they say. The way you show kindness to your parents is by obeying. It's by honoring them. Now as we begin to wrap this up, there are a few kindness killers I want you to watch out for. One kindness killer is a refusal to forgive. It's a kind of bitterness. See, when you're wrong, what do you do? You can choose to nurture a grudge or you can choose to nurture the relationship. Nurturing the grudge will lead to bitterness. Nurturing the relationship will lead to forgiveness and to reconciliation. The pathway we're to take is very, very clear. Usually when people are unkind to us, it's because they're hurting in some way. And if you are kind or tender-hearted, then you're going to give some thought, not just to how they hurt you, but to the wider hurts in their lives, the hurts in the person who has hurt you. And you're going to seek to be an agent of healing in their life. The church father Ambrose said, no one heals himself by wounding another. And yet so often that's the kind of playbook that we use. Hurt people, hurt people. And so when you've been hurt by somebody, you need to ask, I wonder what the other hurts are in this person's life that are driving this. And I wonder if there's any way that I can be an agent of healing 
in this person's life. By responding in kindness, you can not only heal the relationship, you can heal the person. Because the person who has hurt you certainly has hurts in their life as well. In fact, Proverbs, I think, really gets at this. See, what happens when we are kind in this way is there's a kind of benefit that comes back to us. Uh, Proverbs 11.17 says that uh, a man who is kind benefits himself. Obviously, he benefits others, but he benefits himself as well. A cruel man hurts himself, the proverb says. Obviously, a cruel man hurts others, but he also hurts himself. When you are cruel, you're not only hurting somebody else, you're hurting yourself. When you're kind, you're not only helping somebody else, you're helping yourself. In some way, the blessing bounces back to you. In other words, when it comes to relationships, you will reap what you sow. The kind are granted kindness, while the cruel are cursed. It's just the way it is. And so, when you are hurt in a relationship, the best thing you can do is not only seek to restore the relationship, which is good for you, but but go the extra mile and see how you can heal the hurts of the other person, the wider hurts in their life. Don't retaliate. Don't take revenge. Return evil with good. Uh, Another kindness killer is busyness. But if you are too busy to be kind, then you are simply too busy. And you need to ask God what kind of things you can remove from your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in order to have community, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. And of course, the way God interrupts you is through other people, other people's needs. God's schedule for you each day may look very different than the schedule you've mapped out for yourself. God's schedule for you may include all kinds of opportunities for kindness that are going to require you to be flexible with your time and perhaps even with your money as well. I'll just tell you as a pastor how much I love seeing people on a a Sunday after worship is over just hanging out in the parking lot for a while. You know, there's really no agenda there. You know, just when I see the families hanging out by the playground for an extended period of time on Sundays, that kind of time where you can just talk and hang out with people and get to know people is wonderful because it creates all kinds of opportunities for kindness. You're having a conversation with somebody and a need pops up and immediately you start to think, how can I meet that need? How can I help this person? Now, I've visited churches where... Uh, the parking lot was emptied out within three minutes after the benediction. Okay, I'm glad it's not that way here. So we've got to be kind. We must be kind. We've got to live in kindness. We should live and move and have our being in a community and a culture of kindness. Kindness brings blessing to others and it brings benefit to us. Yes, life is messy. You know, isn't it, isn't it funny that in Scripture God is described as a God of order? And yet he sends us so many disordered and messy and chaotic situations to deal with in our lives. We all know the messes in our lives. God says he's a God of order, and yet he sends us all these messes to deal with. And so we have to ask, where do we find the strength to cut through the messiness of life with kindness? You're married, your spouse needs your kindness. If you're a parent, your kids need your kindness. Your neighbor needs your kindness. Your enemies need your kindness. People who have hurt you need your kindness. Your co-workers need your kindness. Your church needs your kindness. How do we get this kindness? Where does it come from? You know, in a lot of these passages that talk about kindness, kindness is described as our responsibility, a work we do. That's how it is in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind. It's a command. It's there also in Colossians 3. We're told to put on kindness, like a kind of clothing, like 
a garment, so we wear it everywhere we go, this kindness that we put on. It's our action, our activity. But that's not the whole story. Where does this kindness come from? In Galatians 5, this kindness is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, behind all of our efforts to be kind is the energizing power of the Holy Spirit to make us kind. It's a supernatural power that produces a supernatural kindness in our lives. And actually, the same thing is here in Ephesians 4. Because as Paul starts to get into all these exhortations, and he's just giving one command after another of the kinds of things that ought to characterize our lives as Christians and characterize the Christian community, back in verse 23, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that's really the foundation of it all. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The verb there is passive, not active. In other words, it's not something we do ourselves. It's something that has to be done to us. It's the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit renews us, He produces this kindness as the fruit of His work. That's why the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. That's why the Father, through the Son, poured out His Spirit to make us like Jesus Christ and to make us like God the Father who sent Him so that we will be kind even as God is kind. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your kindness, this cosmic act of friendship that You showed us in sending Your Son and then sending Your Spirit. Father, may that same Spirit that has flowed out through the Son to us flow out from us to others. The Spirit of kindness. May we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. May we show a true spiritual kindness in our relationships. Help us to experience Your power in the middle of the messiness of life. Help us to find one another's needs and gifts so that we can minister to one another and receive one another's ministry in our lives. This we pray that our church may be characterized by kindness. In Christ's name, amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Eternal, almighty, and most gracious God, heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. Holy and reverend is your name. You are praised by the angels of heaven and in the gathering of your church on earth. And despite ourselves, you have invited us through our mediator, Jesus Christ, to present ourselves and our prayers to you. Receive us graciously. Help us by your spirit. Let us stand in awe of you. Put your law into our hearts and write it on our minds. Let your word come to us in power and help us to receive it in love with attentive, reverent, and teachable minds. And through your word, allow us to taste the flavor of eternal life. Make us fervent in prayer and joyful in praise. Help us to serve you this day without distraction, that we may find a day in your courts is a better than a thousand elsewhere, and that it is good for us to come near to God. And we come to you today through Jesus and by your Spirit. We give you thanks for the gift of our faith, and we ask that you would continue to mature and strengthen that faith, that we would be made more like Christ. We pray that you will be among us today, strengthening the weary, healing the sick, encouraging us all. We thank you for being a God who pursues his people and does not leave us, rather has sought after us, and we rejoice that Jesus makes constant intercession on our behalf. We pray that today we would be a people that consistently give thanks for all of your mercies in our lives. We confess that in our sinfulness we are weak and selfish, but we know that you have saved us by your grace, and in your strength we are freed from that prison. We pray today that all among us would have full assurance that your grace is sufficient, 
If any of us are struggling with doubt, please help us to surround them to pray and encourage them. If any are struggling with habitual sin, help us to pray and confront them in love and peace. We pray that we would be a body that loves one another well, not judging but approaching one another in love and humility. And out of that, O Lord, we pray that we will be an example to all those around us. Your help is at hand and you deliver us from fear even if the whole earth is shaken. And we are gifted with supreme confidence by that grace and power and we are refreshed by your Holy Spirit. We pray for the nations of the world that you would bring peace and unity, that they would see that you are God. We pray your gospel would continue to spread like wildfire to the ends of the earth and that its message would bring the world in worship of you. We are your servants, O God, and today we call upon your name. We pray that your glory will be exalted and your being manifested among us. Save and defend your church, universal, purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Give to her pastors and ministers, endowed with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen her through your word and the sacraments. Make her perfect in love and in all good works, and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world, that in one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. And today, in light of that, Lord, we remember our local body. We pray that you would be among us, strengthen the bonds of friendship and relationships in our body. We pray that you would strengthen marriages and enable parents to be faithful and disciplined in raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We pray that we will be humble and have contrite hearts, that we will be engaged in local ministries and communities around us, that we would love the, the widow and the orphan. We pray for the ministries of this church, for Heritage Academy, for Classical Conversations and for the Theopolis Institutes and all those that are involved there. We pray for our church leaders, for our pastors and our elders and our deacons. Lord, we pray for all those among us who are sick or afflicted, especially all those who are battling cancer. We pray for our upcoming mission trip to Peru scheduled for June, for our engaged couples, for all those caring for aging parents and grandparents, for those seeking new or better work, for our expected mothers, and for those who desire to have children to be fruitful. We pray for the singles of our church, all those among us are unbelieving or grieving the loss of a loved one. And Lord, now we summarize all these prayers in the prayer that your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.